Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. You and I, my friend, are going back to 1835 this week. When slavery was abolished in Mauritius, Fox Talbot exposes the world's first known photographic negatives at Laycock Abbey in Wiltshire. Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tales Told for Children, the first collection, begins publication. And in September, Charles Darwin arrives at the Galapagos Islands aboard HMS Beagle. But we find ourselves stood over an unhonoured grave. There used to be, and probably still is, the inscription, Beneath this stone lies the mortal remains of Mary Ann Burdock, who was executed in this jail April 15th, 1835, in her 38th year for the willful murder by poison of Clara Ann Smith of this city. Now, I have to warn you in advance that her surname changes quite a few times. So for most of this story, I'll call her Mrs. Burdock. Mary Ann Burdock was originally born Mary Ann Williams in 1805 in Urcop near Ross in Herefordshire. When she was 19, she moved to Bristol to look for a job and was hired as a house servant by Mr. Plumley, a poulterer of Nicholas Street. Apparently, her behaviour there was so bad that she was fired without reference. One of the things she was doing was stealing from them. She hired a solicitor to sue Mr Plumley for damages and it almost went to trial in Taunton. But the day before, Mary Ann went missing. Between the time of bringing the action and the trial, she married a man called Charles Ager, a tailor who she had only lived with for a very short time. Soon afterwards, she was living in the horse fair with another man called Thomas, a gentleman's servant who was already married. She had a son with Thomas, who was 15 when she died, as well as a daughter, whose father was unknown. Then she was swept off her feet by Mr Wade, who was the owner of a clothes shop on the quay, and was also a steward of a steam packet, as well as owning lodging houses in different parts of the city, one of which was in Trinity Street, where the crime took place. But Wade's run of luck was short. 
He died in 1829, and within weeks, our Mary Ann was bigamously married to Paul Burdock, an American trader of clothes, who was lodging with her. Remember, she was still legally married to Charles Agar, of course. It turns out that one day, he turned round and said that he'd be returning to America. But Mary Ann suggested that he could continue with his trade in England if he were to marry her. Looking from his point of view, she was a beautiful woman who wanted to marry him. And let's not forget, she now had all the wealth of Mr. Wade, as well as access to the money of Mrs. Clara Ann Smith, a widow who had died whilst lodging with Mrs. Burdock. The soon-to-be Mary Ann Burdock was described as being in good shape, but inclined towards portly. Handsome, with a florid complexion, dark hair, large dark eyes, and generally very pretty. She couldn't read or write, though. Her house was beautifully furnished, and she was lucky to have hundreds of pounds in the bank. Her new husband suggested that they move to America, which they would have probably done, if it wasn't for a rather unpleasant visitor. of the week is gruel. And why? Because I've always wondered what it was, and it's mentioned in this story. Now, gruel is a thin, porridge-like mixture with boiled milk or water. It was once used as a reliable home remedy, because it's less dense and more liquefied than porridge, and is one of the easiest foods to digest. In the 19th century, though, it got a brief promotion from sensible sit-day soup a full-on remedy. An 1860 edition of the New Orleans The Courier plugged a product called Invigorating Gruel, invented and prepared by P. Marmay, which boasted such a pleasant taste that it is used as a relish by those in good health and an infallible remedy in case of sickness. And let's not forget Charles Dickens, ever the social critic, immortalised gruel as an image of poverty with the famous scene in his 1838 novel, Oliver Twist, where a young boy goes up and asks, Please, sir, I want some more. Life was looking great for the new Mr and Mrs Burdock. They were happy, until friends and relatives of Clara Smith began coming round and asking for information about the elderly lodger of the new Mrs. Burdock. Clara had died about a year before in Mrs. Burdock's house. Mrs. Burdock told them that Mrs. Smith had died in poverty, and that she had the poor old soul buried at her own expense, with some flowers planted on the grave. This didn't satisfy the visitors, with one young man in particular being a nephew, Thomas Manley from Wales one of four children with the surname Manley, of Clara's deceased sister. It was not until the summer of 1834, 14 months after Clara's burial, that the police actually took any real interest and interviewed Mary Allen, a young girl who had been hired specifically to look after the ailing Mrs Clara Smith in her final days. Her evidence proved vital. 
The deceased's nephew, Thomas Manley, was very, very persistent. He wanted to know what happened to his dear old aunt. He obtained government permission for a full inquiry and an exhumation took place. The autopsy happened at the Bristol Royal Infirmary on the 22nd of December before several of its leading surgeons. It was immediately noticed how well preserved the body was. Clara's internal organs were sent to the Bristol Medical School, where Dr William Herapath was able to confirm that Clara Smith's stomach contained a large amount of arsenic. The one that did the autopsy, Dr William Herapath, appeared as an expert witness at the trial. He had a very high reputation as an analyst and was one of the founders of the Bristol Medical School. Mrs Burdock's older servant, Mary Evans, who had worked for her for over 15 years, said that when Mrs Clara Smith moved in, she had a carpet bag and a small box. Both seemed to be very heavy. A solicitor found out that when Clara died, she had in fact been very wealthy, and just before her death, she had at least £1,000 cash to hand, as well as two properties. Clara Ann Smith was the widow of Mr John Smith, formerly an ironmonger in the old market area of Bristol. Her maiden name had been Lumley, and she was about 54 when she died. She was described as a tall, thin, respectable lady who had very regular habits, such as only drinking half a pint of beer for dinner and another half for supper. She also didn't trust banks, so would keep large amounts of money with her. She owned a gold watch, which she kept in a small leather pouch, and during the court case, witnesses said that Mrs Burdock gave the watch to Mr Wade shortly before Mrs Smith's death. Another witness said she saw Mrs Burdock burning important documents of Clara's after her death. These could have possibly been the mortgage deeds that were missing. And it was since the poor woman's death that Mr and Mrs Wade's fortunes had reversed considerably. At the trial, a friend of the late Mr Wade, a Mr Babington, said he heard Mrs Burdock exclaim that Mr Wade had been very ill for such a long time and she didn't know what to do. Nearly everything she had was gone. Three weeks before Clara's death, Mr Babington asked Wade for money owing and Wade had replied that he had not a penny to his name. After Clara's funeral, Mr Babington visited the lodging house again and during conversation, Mrs Burdock said that Clara had been extremely poor and what she'd left behind wasn't worth 15 shillings. But he did notice a change in their behaviour. Suddenly, there appeared new furniture, like chest of drawers. Mrs Burdock explained that she had inherited some property from an uncle. Also, surprisingly, Wade was able to pay off his debts. Wade also managed to set up a business with money that Mrs Burdock had given him and bought £400 worth of stock. This business was on a much larger scale than his previous endeavours. He even employed his friend Babington to sell for him. 
Wade then set up as a master tailor about six months after Clara's death. At the inquest, the young maid, Mary Ann Allen, who was hired by Mrs Burdock to look after the late Clara, said that the old lady had become ill one day and died suddenly the next. Mrs Burdock had told her that Clara had fallen against the bed and hit her head. Young Mary was told not to touch anything the old woman drank or ate out of, as she was a dirty old woman. The girl's mother visited and actually asked Mrs Burdock if the old lady had anything catching and was told no, just that she had sores in her mouth. At the trial, the young maid said that on the 26th of October, 1833, the night that Clara died, she saw Mrs Burdock mixing yellow powder in the deceased gruel and after that, immediately washing her hands in the bowl that the old lady used. Within 30 minutes of eating her gruel, Clara was rolling around in agony. Mrs Smith asked Clara how she felt, to which she replied, Go along, leave me alone. At this, Mrs Burdock laughed. (laughs) (laughs) This week's book of the week is The Gaslight Stalker by David Field. It's number one in a series of Esther and Jack Enright mysteries. If, like me, you like Victorian crime thrillers, then this book is for you. It features the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper, but with a twist. And this book is so atmospheric that you could actually smell the smog whilst you're reading it. It was that good. Something else I also enjoyed about this book was that the main female character was very strong-willed, brave, Unintelligent. You're listening to Alice on the Backtracker History Show. Hear it first only on Bradley Stoke Radio online at bradleystokeradio.com. An anxious young Mary asked if she should call a doctor. Mrs. Burdock then pretended to whisper into Clara's ear and replied, Mrs. Smith says, what? Have a doctor kill me? Two hours later, all was quiet. Mary the maid edged towards the bed, nervous. She touched the old lady's cheek and found that it was quite cold. She screamed, she's dead! To which Mrs. Burdock replied, come and sit down and don't make a fool of yourself. Mrs. Burdock, she is dead. Why don't you come here? asked Mary. Mrs. Burdock calmly walked to the bedside and exclaimed, Lord, she is dead. What shall I do to bury her? Clara would eventually be buried in St. Augustine's churchyard. Whilst Mary was attending to Clara's body, she recalled that she could hear Mrs. Burdock going through the cupboard and drawers in the room. Apparently, Mrs. Burdock threw a hair accessory onto the bed where Mary was and said Mary you may have that Mary declined saying it wasn't the sort of thing she wore that night Clara's boxes were ransacked and her reputation destroyed 
Mrs. Burdock claimed that she had been a drunk and a thief. Clara's gold earrings were taken from her corpse, with Mrs. Burdock proclaiming that they would go some way to the pauper's grave funeral costs. On the 10th of April, 1835, Mary Ann Burdock went to trial at the Guildhall for Sir Charles Wetherill, the same hardline anti-reform recorder of Bristol, whose arrival in Bristol for the sizes in 1831 had provoked civil disturbance, during which four people were killed and 86 wounded. So we're not talking about a soft judge here, really. At the trial, Flora Bonner, who had been friends with Clara for over 20 years, said that in November 1833, she visited the house where her dear friend had died. She'd been told that her friend had been buried in a respectable manner, but that she had no property and there was nothing in the house. Flora asked after Clara's fine clothes, the watch and trinkets, but Mrs. Burdock replied that Clara had sold them and what was left wasn't worth much. Flora then announced that she would be coming back with other friends to claim what remained. Mrs. Burdock called Mr. Wade into the room and told him what had been said, and he said, let them come. We have nothing here belonging to her but rags and a few papers. During the trial, Clara's skull was produced and placed in a prominent position in front of the witness box. Mrs. Burdock did not appear affected by this. With this skull came further evidence that Clara could only have died by ingesting something. The skull clearly showed that Mrs. Burdock's explanation that Clara had suffered a heavy blow to her head was false. Mrs. Burdock had already spent four months in her jail cell by the time of the verdict. A lady would visit, reading passages from the Bible, and talk about religion. Sometimes Mrs. Burdock would cry, but most of the time she was rather indifferent to the whole thing. On the 8th of April, 1835, things seemed to change. Madam, do you remember the parable of the labourers in the vineyard? Yes, it's at the 20th of Matthew. Well, in the middle of the night, I heard a voice say to me, Thou too shalt find repentance at the eleventh hour. Yes, and forgiveness too. Mrs. Burdock, I think the eleventh hour is far advanced with you. Remember that in two days you will appear at the bar, and by this day next week, maybe a lifeless corpse. I do not consider it to be my eleventh hour until my trial is over. Do promise to come to me Friday evening, when I have much to say. I shall ask you then to give me a solemn promise that you will take care of my daughter and see that she is brought up in the fear of God, that she may never be sent to such a place as I am in now. Mind, if I am condemned, I shall die innocent, but be sure to come Friday evening. Mary Ann Burdock's trial lasted three days, ending with a nine-hour summing up by Wetherill, after which the jury retired for only 15 minutes and returned with a guilty verdict. Execution was inevitable. In court, Mrs. Burdock was calm and composed, but when she was found guilty, however, she crumbled into an incoherent, violent mess. It was not made public knowledge 
but Mrs Burdock apparently did make a confession, but not to the chaplain or the governor of the prison. She explained how she had kept the arsenic in her pocket for two days, before giving it to her then-partner, Wade, who mixed it into thickened milk with a mustard spoon, which they later destroyed. She then took it upstairs to her room and was surprised by the servant, young Mary. She went on to say that she had planned on throwing most of it away. When she went back to her cell after the verdict, she asked for a beer and then ranted at the attorney, saying how he really wasn't concerned with her welfare at all. She asked if she could see all her relations the next day, as she may not be alive the following night. Her attorney asked if her eight-year-old daughter should come too, and Mrs Burdock said yes, but make sure she's well-dressed. The following day, she was indeed visited by her children, her brother and other relatives. They were all shocked by her general disregard for her actions and lack of feeling for what she'd done. The only time she showed any emotion was when tears appeared in her eyes as she kissed her children goodbye. Once they had gone, though, that tough exterior returned and she immediately questioned her attorney about £500 she had in the bank, asking how much after bills would be left for her children. Strangely, she asked the prison matron who made the prison coffins, because she wanted to see hers just to make sure she'd fit. She also asked that it would be lined with flannel and that a good warm shroud should be provided and she wanted the coffin brought to her room so that it would be by her bedside overnight. Her brother would pay. The next day, the prison chaplain and her son both tried to persuade her to confess her crimes, but to no avail. She gave each of her children a biscuit and her son a knife. It's interesting to note that while she was there, her husband was also in the same jail, but for debt, and he was allowed to attend a small service in the chapel. About 1pm on the 15th of April, 1835, she was in the procession, led by the clergyman, reading the funeral service. She was dressed in black gown, coloured shawl and a black bonnet. In the press room, she responded to the prayers and her bonnet and shawl were removed so that her arms could be pinioned to her body. The usual white cap was placed on her head and the rope adjusted to her neck. She asked if something soft could be placed between the rope and her skin but was refused. In her final speech, she said, Dear gentlemen, the time is short. It is hard to die. Remember me to my husband and friends. And now for this final instalment of this sorry, sorry tale. Just as the group got to the scaffold, the heavens opened and an umbrella was requested. So they waited. A crowd estimated at 50,000 had lined the banks of the new cut to witness the execution. And there was the usual carnival atmosphere. Mary's was to be the first female execution on top of the gatehouse of the new jail in Cumberland Road, part of which still exists. The gallows had been erected the night before. The executioner fastened the rope to the gallows, pulled the cap over Mary's face and put the white handkerchief in her hand. In less than a minute, she gave the signal and the bolt was drawn. 
She only convulsed slightly and then was gone. Marianne Burdock was suspected of other murders, including that of a 26-year-old John Clark, whose father was a baker who lived in College Street. John had left home one evening with his white bull terrier and had not been heard of since. His parents tried everything to find him, even having the harbour dragged and different areas of Bristol searched. A reward of five pounds was offered, but to no avail. In February 1890, during excavation work for the foundations of the Church of the Good Shepherd on Brandon Hill, workmen discovered a human skeleton, and by its side the remains of a dog. The body looked like it had been buried in a doubled-up position. Those older residents of the neighbourhood believed it was the remains of the young boy and his constant companion, his pet dog. During my research, I discovered that two death masks or casts were done of Mrs. Burdock. One was predominantly of her forehead, done three hours after death, for the phrenologist of the day to examine. And the other was of her whole head and face, which was done five days after the execution. Due to the passing of the Anatomy Act a year earlier, Mary's body did not have to undergo the indignity of public dissection but was to be buried within the precincts of the new jail. But, in 1933, nearly a hundred years later, Professor Fawcett of Bristol University told members of the Bristol and Gloucestershire Archaeology Society that he had the skull of Marianne Burdock. No one knows how he got hold of it, but it came up during a talk about Bristol and the law. Mary's was the first female execution in Bristol for 22 years. The previous occasion was when Maria Davis and Charlotte Bobbitt were hanged together on the 12th of April 1802 for the murder of Maria's son, 15-month-old Richard Davis. for me to bombard your cranium with some back-in-the-day facts. Did you know on the 22nd of August in 1851, the America's Cup was inaugurated by the Royal Yacht Squadron for the fastest sail around the Isle of Wight, so named because the yacht America was the first winner? On the 23rd of August 1912, Gene Kelly was born. Also on the 23rd of August in 1305, Scottish patriot and hero William Wallace was hanged, drawn and quartered in London. His quarters were sent to Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling and Perth. On the 24th of August 1970, the tug Varius began its 8,000 mile journey towing the hulk of the SS Great Britain from the Falkland Islands back to Bristol.
And last but not least, Scottish film actor Sir Sean Connery was born on the 25th of August, 1930. In my opinion, Sir Sean Connery is a national treasure, having appeared in many, many films, including Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Hunt for Red October, The Rock, Entrapment, and of course, James Bond. He was the first actor to portray James Bond in the film Doctor No, and he appeared in seven in total. But did you know that he was offered the role of Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings series, but declined it? Connery was reportedly offered 30 million, along with 15% of the worldwide box office receipts for the role. If he had accepted, he would have earned $450 million. Now, Connery also rejected the part of the architect in the Matrix trilogy for similar reasons. That reason being, he didn't understand the script. I'm going to take a moment to thank Samantha Vernon and Andrea Reed for helping me bring this story to life. They are both members of the St. Stephen's Drama Group in Sanwell, Bristol, and, as with most things, the theatre companies are struggling at the moment. So, when they start playing, bear them all in mind. I'm going to give you a top-tastic tracker tip of the week. You've heard that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well... An onion a day keeps everyone away. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.